by starting have, having a conversation with you originally um, before we take a whole bunch of notes, I want to kind of talk about and talk through what did you get on last week? What stood out to you? Um, what did you, what didn't you know? What was surprising to you? Um, just anything. I want to pick your brain for a minute and get a conversation going before I move further. And I have to get this conversation going before I move forward because I'm going to get in some deep waters on tonight. But I got to know where your mind is at first. Amen. All right. So anybody, anybody, you can go to a microphone. Just get to a microphone. Uh, go ahead and get to a microphone. Amen. Y'all can start a line. I don't care. Amen. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're going to start over here. Amen. Ain't nobody coming over here. All right. Go ahead. Uh, what was really interesting to me was just realizing how many names ended up being black people in the Bible. Like you read some of the stories growing up in church and you you know you know that there are people in the Bible and that people we relate to, but not knowing like they're black. Yeah. So that really stood out to me. And then during translations where like the conjunctions could be switched, right. where it may be, you know, it was left up to the translator and it may not be necessarily what the writer meant. Right. So that right. those are like the two things that really just kind of like floored me. Can I ask you something? Sure. When you thought about those people growing up or whenever you heard those those names, what color did you see them as in your, in your mind? Honestly, pale. Like, just kind of, like, maybe not necessarily white, but definitely not, like, my kind of cocoa color. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Okay, that's good. That's good. All right. Priscilla? I guess the, the thing was how you started said that I always wondered where the term that it was a white man's religion actually came from and yes. then you said that it was started by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad mm -hmm. um, and that Christianity um, was introduced post the Middle Passage and so I've been doing a lot of studying on that because I've always wondered where that started from because mm -hmm. I knew that the concept of black and white is mostly like an American thing so yes. like I was wondering like where that came from. from yeah. It, was that not amazing that when you saw the date 16, whatever it was, that that was the first time that people were classified exactly. in colors? Exactly. That any time before that, that was not even an issue. It was all about nationality or what language you spoke. Exactly. Which is a, so um, I'm not going to say racism is a new concept, but what I will say is that Americanized racism exactly. is a new concept. Um, or should I say European racism is a, new, uh, is a newer concept than what we're used to. And so um, it, even if you look at the Bible, if you want to say racism based upon color, it's very difficult. But if you look at um, the, the, the Israelites, where were they in bondage to originally? Where do we see that? Where, where were they in bondage to? Egypt. Right. So, you know, it kind of, but it was never about their color. It was always about nationality. And that's what it always drove to. So that's good. Deacon Larry? Almost what was said earlier, the thing that I recognized was how uh, they had changed and whitewashed. Mm. Yeah. A lot of the, uh, the same things were just, it, they made us think that they were not us. Yeah. So, so it, the, the whole concept, I, I, the way I see what you're doing is you're showing us that we can love us yes. and be proud of us. Yes. That we don't have to be consider ourselves as anything less than second class. We are greater. Right. So that's right. some of it all. Thank you, sir. Can I ask y'all a question? And show of hands. How many of y'all grew up in a church that had a painted Jesus on your wall and he was white? 
Is that not scary? Is that not scary? And then on the fans. You had the one fan with Jesus and you had the other fan with Martin Luther King and um, John Kennedy on it. Y'all like old school like I am. John Kennedy and, and uh, Martin Luther King. In the house. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was, no, it was, it was, mine was, it was a funeral home. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It was with a funeral yes, home. Yes, sir. Somebody mortuary, you know. But, I mean, let's do that one more time. Raise your hand if you grew up in a church and they had a white Jesus on the wall. Look at that. That is scary. Is that not amazing? Now, again, I'm not telling you that Jesus is necessarily black. I'm telling you he wasn't white. I'm very clear on that. <laughs> if I'm not clear on anything else, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus cannot fit in in Egypt, cannot hide out. It is impossible. There's no way possible. Okay? And so when you look at that, it is, it is amazing how, unfortunately, because of the effects of slavery, because of the effects of, of, of our history, that we accepted some things as norms that was carried on throughout the generation. I couldn't imagine my grandmother going home would be to be with the Lord. She knew Jesus for real. You know, you, you know, you got them family members that know him for real, for real. She knew Jesus for real, and she thought he was white. You can tell her she, you listen, you can tell her her savior wasn't white. <laughs> she would be, I mean, rolling over right now if she heard what I'm saying. But the reality is that I think that we are dealing with, um, the effects of slavery as Americans that faith and religion for us is challenged on so many fronts because we only look at it from one context and because we only look at it from context we struggle with being foundationed in our faith knowing that oh well you know I'm going back to African spirituality well okay when well, you got to run through Christianity too are you getting what I'm saying Okay, so um, I, I want us to kind of, I'm trying to stretch us a little bit because I'm going to show you some things on tonight. Dave? Um, pretty much what I got from last week was, I mean, was like, I knew we were kings and queens even back then. Like, there was black kings and queens mm -hmm. in, in Africa back then. But I just, as Jasmine Deacon Larry said, just more in depth of how many of us were there. Mm -hmm. So... And then pretty much, yeah. Now, anyway, um, <laughs> it was just something that was like, wow. I mean, like I said, we knew of it, but like what we learned last week, so in depth and everything, like I pretty much took it as we we had power even back then, mm, right? Like power, like power, power, especially when God is backing you. So yeah, even from way back then, it was like. We have power. That's why Satan is afraid of us. Mm -hmm. He's afraid of anybody that got power of God mm -hmm. in them. Yeah, and that's what we and that's what they had back then. Okay. So that's awesome. Okay. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yes. So having um, dealt with being darker all mm -hmm. my life, um, mm -hmm. when you made point of Solomon one five and six, mm -hmm. I literally wrote that on my mirror, I am dark and lovely. Mm -hmm. So that really boosts my self-esteem even more. Yeah. So yeah. that is really, yeah. yeah. And for that to be, I mean, look at it from this context. For God to have that included in scripture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Solidified. Right. Yeah. 
it is a validation right. that God is trying to show us that, um, and I'm going to allude to it later on, but it's a validation that no matter what hue you, you are, mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about the Song of Solomon. If you've ever read Song of Solomon, that's a love letter. I mean, it's nasty. Y'all ain't never read? You need to read, turn off your TV, open up your Bible, and go to the Song of Solomon. And when you see the metaphors in there, you're going to be like, good God, this is rated X. But the fact that he's writing a love letter to a woman of color, and not just any woman of color, clearly a dog sister, that she was the epitome of what beauty is. And then we even saw, who was it that, that, that you had to go get a, a black woman? David. We saw with David. They searched the whole world over and couldn't find, and they was looking for the most beautiful woman in the world. And they came back with a sister to see if he was still alive. Ain't that some mess? <laughs> Deke, that messed me up. That warmed him. That thing messed me up. The Bible is a mess. I promise you. You need to read it. But I, I, I'm grateful for that. And what I love about that is that it, it now it validates who you are, even in your faith. It is not something that you are separate from. You are included in. So let me say this to everyone that maybe you weren't here on last week. You need to go back to that podcast because I cannot go back over that. That was two hours of straight, hard teaching. And um, they, I mean, I know y'all hands was hurting last week from all the writing y'all were doing. But I, it was such valuable information. And my goal last week was to make sure you left out of here knowing something you did not know before. Okay? Um, one of the hardest things to do, and I'll say this, and, and some of you need to hear this. One of the hardest things to do now is to find the perspective of commentaries that speak from an African or African-American experience. There are very few commentaries written by black people. And there are even fewer, listen to this, written by black women. Okay? Um, that is one of the hardest things to find. And because of that, everything has a slant. Even when you do commentaries, if you're a preacher, you, you read commentaries, find out what the background and scripture is and all this kind of stuff, you will discover that a lot of it has a slant, a slant, a tint towards a European mindset that sometimes does not include us into the equation. And it's dangerous because just like that I'm black, I'm dark and lovely. Um, and King James says, I am dark but lovely. And so just that alone, if you don't get a right commentary that will show you that there, that there, there, was, there was no conjunctions and the conjunction was built on the, on the word right before it, then you will walk away feeling as if you are inferior because you got a, a commentary from someone who already had a slant against people of darker hue. And so we have to make sure that we understand our faith. So I am teaching this so that you have a better understanding of your faith. You might not shout off of this. But I promise you it will help you in the long run, all right? So I want to kind of dive into this and just recap something real quick so I can move forward in my point. Last week we talked about, come on, let's go, the de-Africanization of the Bible. Remember we talked about this last week and saying that there's been a deliberate attempt to take references to Africa out of Scripture and place them somewhere else. This is the biggest problem we have to deal with, and they do this through a couple of ways. Number one, we saw the denial of the presence of African nations and people in Scripture. Um, you will find traditional readings in the 1600s, 1700s where individuals were not associated as coming from Africa. So Cush all of a sudden became a place that wasn't in Africa no more. It was somewhere in the Middle East when that's not the reality. 
they try to make it seem as if there was two Cushes. There was only one, and it's in Africa, all right? Um, even as you saw uh, Simon of Cyrene, we talked about that, uh, which means Simon of, from Africa. That means that a man that helped carry the cross for Jesus up the hill is a black man. Because if, if you call him Simon of Africa, now you are validating Africans at, and the descendants of Africans. We also talked about the removal of Egypt from Africa and the placement in the rest, Western world. Even today, people struggle with the fact that Africa is Egypt. And Egypt, um, Egypt is Africa. I meant to say it like that. That Egypt is Africa. That we don't we don't want to associate that. We think all of a sudden they're in the Middle East. No, boo. That's on the continent. Okay. That is that is in Africa. Okay. And so we, a lot of times when you look at um, uh, these perspectives, they remove Egypt from Africa and place it in the Western world. We also looked at Israel, Israel only shaped by Mesopotamia in the Near East, and that is not true. And I'm going to teach you even deeper on tonight how much that's not true. And I think it's going to blow your mind to see how much of our faith is actually shaped by black people and African uh, people. And it's going to blow your mind, okay? And so we're going to look at that as well. And the last thing we looked at was identification of African nations hindered by the lack of maps drawn during the time allowing people to be located outside of Africa. So you have people that were of modern time trying to look back. Uh, somebody in the 1600s trying to look back at 500 BC and trying to decide where something was at. And that is very difficult to do, okay? So they would put Cush in the Middle East when Cush was actually in Africa, all right? Um, they would take the Garden of Eden, put that in the Middle East, and they try to attach it to Euphrates and T uh, Tigris River. And, and the reality is that when you do your study, most times uh, many scholars believe that, that uh, the Garden of Eden was actually uh, by the Nile, okay? Because that is the cradle of civilization. And so it would make more sense for it to be by the Nile, not necessarily by the Euphrates. So um, those are little things that we had to look at. So I want to go a little dive deeper into this. And on tonight, I'm not going to do a whole lot of Bible because this is more history on tonight, okay? This is history. Really, it's church history that maybe you did not know this. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know it. So I had to dive into this and get as much as I could out of this. But the one scripture I want you to go to is Acts the 8th chapter, verse number 26. Acts 8, verse number 26. Acts the 8th chapter, verse number 26. We looked at this last week, but this is going to be my launching pad for where we're headed so that you understand um, the whole dynamic. We will not be here two hours tonight, praise God, um, preferably. And so... <laughs> um, so I want to kind of dive into this. Um, now, this is difficult on tonight. I want to uh, preface this by saying this is difficult. Let me tell you why. Because there's no way that I can sum up a thousand years of history in an hour. So I'm not going to hit everything tonight. just want to be clear. I want to whet your appetite enough that you go research it yourself. Okay? I want to be clear. I need to be clear that when I teach you something, when I give you something, go look it up for yourself. Don't take my word. Know it for yourself, okay? I want to be clear about that. Because um, preachers will get up and say all kind of stuff that ain't true. And you be living up your life off of it, okay? And so I want to make sure that you um, get versed in this as well. Acts 8, chapter, verse number 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the, uh, the, the Kendaki, uh, which means queen of the Ethiopians. Uh, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet reading the book of Isaiah the prophet verse 29 the spirit told Philip go to the chariot and stay near it verse 30 then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet do you understand what you are reading Philip asked how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but when he went on his way rejoicing. Verse number 40. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Okay, I want, I want to kind of lay this out for you. Last week, we took a brief look at this story of the Ethiopian eunuch. This story is significant because it helps overturn the lie that Christianity is a white man's religion, but also because it marks the initial fulfillment of Jesus' promise uh, in Acts 1 and 8. Go to Acts 1 and 8. Let's go over to Acts 1 and 8. Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. This is before Jesus ascends into the heavens and he promises disciples something. Acts 1 and 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Stop. Now when you hear that scripture, uh, post-Reformation, Neo-Pentecostals, um, people that come from a more Protestant background always look at it the first part and say but you will receive power hey glory <laughs> we shout over the power 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 Lord power power Lord okay what you need power for you need power to sit down your, on, on the seat and wave your hand at the pastor when he say something you like what you need power for? You need power so that you can sing your little solo? That's what you need power for? Because I know people with skill and no power that can do it better than you. So what do you need power for? It's right there in the, in the scripture. To be my witness. Now we can stop right there and go home. Because the question is, if God is giving you power to overcome depression, why is he not giving you power to, to be his witness as well? 
Isn't it amazing how we use God for what we want? But when a requirement and a standard come up, we back away. We don't want to be witnesses no more. We just want them, help me with my depression, help me with my bills, help me with this, help me with that. And God is saying, okay, I could give you all that, but can I give you power to be my witness? That you can be the standard bearer for me. Watch this, but not my witness in your church. Not my witness behind the four walls. Not my witness with your other church friends. The Bible says that you be my witness in what? Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That means wherever you go, you should be his witness. That's scary. Because some of the places we go, we, they don't... They are witnessing something. But you are not a witness. Oh, I know you came in here for church history, but I want to drop this off to you real quick. He wants to know, can you be my witness? Now, let's look at it from a church perspective. He is saying, watch this, the fulfillment of this is that the Holy Ghost comes to give you power so that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And I need you to notice this. Jerusalem, where they at? Back up. Judea. Go even further. Samaria. And just in case you thought I was just talking to Jewish people and to the ends of the earth. So by the time we get over to Philip uh, the, and the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, now this is being fulfilled because now it is reaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ is reaching someone beyond the borders of what was just laid out. Yeah. Do you get that? Okay. So in Acts the 8th, due to persecution, Christians were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, but that didn't keep them from talking about Jesus. Instead, the believers who scattered uh, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. That's Acts the 8th chapter, verse number 4. The gospel was on the move, and as more people was filled with the Holy Ghost, we, uh, new witnesses were born. Then we come to the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip, who was a deacon of the church in Jerusalem, was instructed by an angel of the Lord to leave Samaria and travel south to the desert road that went from Jerusalem to Gaza. Um, now, this is crazy because this road from Jerusalem to Gaza was a deserted road. Hardly anyone would even travel on it. Isn't it amazing how God is telling him to go do something that, don't, that sound real crazy? Like, why would I even go over there? Watch this. There are no villages or towns even surrounding this road. It's just a, des a deserted road. And God tells Philip, go down this road. Watch this. And on his travel, Philip finds a single chariot traveling along the road. He ran over to catch up with it at the Spirit's prompting. As he gets close to the chariot, he heard a man reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Philip realizes he was an Ethiopian, not Jewish, and asks, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Okay. Now, the funniest thing in the world, um, 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 uh, where's Eddie? Eddie sent me something. Uh, that scripture right there, was that on, that was just like on the Bible app? Okay, so on the Bible app, when you, if you have it read it to you, all of a sudden the Ethiopian eunuch got this accent. It's hilarious. <laughs> it is hilarious. Because Philip is as white as can be. And then all of a sudden, when Ethiopian eunuch starts talking, I do not know. It is hilarious, okay? Now watch this. Through th though the Ethiopian eunuch had likely traveled from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship God at a Jewish festival, he had no idea what or who Isaiah was talking about. All he knew is was that God was real and deserving of his devotion. He believed this so much that he traveled five and a half months to worship God. Let me say that one more time. 
he traveled five and a half months to go worship God. Mm -hmm. Can't even get us to come around the corner. Five and a half months to worship God. Got a headache. I can't come to church. Five and a half months. Let me keep going. Because the praise is going down. Because of the Jewish law, the Ethiopian eunuch was prevented from even entering the temple because he was a foreigner. And he went anyway. Not only that, but his status as a eunuch also prevented him from worshiping in the temple because he was considered unclean by Jewish law. But he went anyway. Look at your neighbor and say, he went anyway. Y'all try to freeze us out of here. Turn that up. What's that on? Uh-huh, turn it up. 72, something. Thank you. Watch this. All this Ethiopian eunuch could do was stand outside the temple and listen as people raise their voices to God. So out of an eagerness to know God, he had just traveled to worship. He gladly welcomes Philip aboard his chariot to explain. Philip picks up from where the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from, from in Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 and begins to share the gospel. Imagine just for a minute how this Ethiopian eunuch heart fluttered. Watch this when he didn't just read that get your Bible go to Isaiah the 56th chapter verse number 3 through 8 Isaiah the 56th chapter verse number 3 through 8 now the text said he was reading the book of Isaiah right the book the whole book so in the same book I need you to see this Isaiah 56 verse number 3 through 8 I'm reading from the New Living Translation Isaiah 56, verse number 3 through 8. Y'all got it? Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be a part of his people. And don't let the eunuchs say, I am, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. I need you to see this. He found himself in the Bible. And because he found himself in the Bible, it moved him to want to go find out more. Just in case you didn't know, that's why I'm doing this. Because I'm trying to get you to find yourself in the Bible. Nothing blessed me better when, when um, um, Amber got up here and said that that scripture pushed her even more, built her self-esteem even more, that she can be dark, and the Bible describes her as dark and lovely, because I need you to find yourself in the Bible. Can I ask you something? How do you think, and y'all need to get on the mics because we're going to have some questions tonight, how do you think these words landed on the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch? And come on, it's on the screen. And how um, might these words have changed his understanding of God and himself? How might these words have changed his understanding of God and himself? Anybody can answer that. Okay, so for me, reading this, the eunuch might have seen himself in a place of where, uh, because of his 
position or his condition that he himself is limited on what he can do or who he can be but reading a scripture that says that even in your current state God will still bless you I think it gave him a, a boat of confidence that you know hey regardless of what I got going on God still looks out for me God is still on my side he's still for me and I think that's what moved him really to go find out more because now it's saying I am somebody I am somebody of value because if if I could find myself in the holy scriptures okay that means I am a part of something greater anybody else how might these words have changed his understanding of God and himself uh, going back with what pastor was saying uh, you have to look at uh, I, I look at it as uh, I'm on with him and when I was younger you know like my, like your grandmother she, my grandmother she loved Jesus that's all we knew and she had a picture of God that was white I grew up in Mississippi and we grew up separately so I always talked don't look at them. So you got to think about what he was taught. You know, he's a eunuch. Right. You got to think about what he was taught. Don't look up. You're nothing. You're nobody. Right. But then he reads this scripture, you know, that, that he's never seen before. You got to think about he was taught not to read. He was taught not to look at this. He was taught just, just do what you're supposed to do and that's it. You will get something out of it. But you won't get what we got. You won't be how we are. And he reads the scriptures and it tells him, you're just like those who, who praise me. You like the just like those who who honor me. You know less than them. You're more just like them. You have power just like they do. Willie got a preaching him. Y'all see that? Am I the only one that saw that? Okay. I saw a little preach there. Wait a minute. <laughs> Let me tell you why that's so that's so profound. What you just said, Willie. Because a eunuch is someone. What you realize from a eunuch is what somebody that's what castrated right mm -hmm. but the purpose of that is that you are devoted completely and totally to whoever you serve so what Willie is saying is that you are programmed to only be one way and here is scripture showing you I put you on the same level as everybody else mm -hmm. you're not beneath or less than mm -hmm. so that was powerful what you just said because that that would change his understanding of God and himself deep you almost took away what I was about to say just like, like you were saying about him being a eunuch, see, them making him a eunuch was supposed to take away his desires. Yeah. See, but because he, that's good. He had somebody to explain to him yeah. that which he didn't understand. Yeah. Made him want more. Yeah. So, yeah. so he now that he could start to understand, he had an even more deeper desire. That, that is so good. That is good. Did, do y'all get that? Do y'all see that? that as a eunuch it is you are castrated to take away your desires and here is this Ethiopian eunuch who has a greater desire because he see himself in the text okay what if how different would this world be if we started showing people who they were from the word of God how different would churches overflow if we stopped telling people you ain't this and you ain't that and we started telling them who they are in the eyesight of God how different would it be and so you see that passion that, that, is, that is just coming out. With this new, renewed perspective of God and himself, along with his understanding of Christ's role in his salvation, the Ethiopian eunuch, at that moment, I want you to see this, realized that there is nothing that is a barrier any longer between him and God. How do I know that? Because right there in that moment, he said, okay, I need to be baptized. Where, where's some water at? 
because there is no more barrier between me and God. In Christ, he's no longer a foreigner, but he's a son. In Christ, he's no longer unclean, but clean. That's why he was looking for some water, and he asked Philip if, if, he, if there was any way that, he could, that, he, that prevented him from being baptized. And so he wanted to go after God all the way. Because when you see yourself in God and God in you, you'll want to go after God all the way. That's amazing. The Holy Spirit revealed that God's desire for this, you know, Ethiopian, burnt face eunuch. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's just amazing. I, I want to look at this quote, and I'm going to ask this question as well. Come on, let's go. Um, if God intentionally inspired the writers of Scripture to record particular stories, then who than who they were in regard to their ethnicity, gender, and socioeconomic status mattered. Why is it significant that the first non-Jew to receive Christ was a black man? Why is that significant to us? Anybody can get there, get to a, a, a microphone. Why is that significant to us? I'll give you the other questions as well. What significance does this have for the church and what significance does this have for you personally? Yes, ma'am. I think why it's significant is because it goes back to what you were teaching last week, where they made us think that Christianity was a white man's religion, and not, it wasn't a white. It's not a white man's religion. So they essentially gave it back to us, allowing right. us to say, "Hey, this is what's yours. We're giving it back to you. Come on, you're on the same level with us." And I think it's significant in the church because we're taught not like. It blew my mind to see so many hands go up saying that they, they were raised with a white Jesus. And like, so we're taught that Jesus looks like something that is not us. And for me, like, I'm very, very pro that black. That would have been a problem for me to be worshiping somebody that didn't look like me. Mm. And so, mm. yeah. What if I say he don't look like you? I don't think he's, like, you know, an African-American. I just don't think he pale. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Right, D, you can ask any of these questions. Uh, going back to the, first, the very first one yes. you asked, because that's when I, the, the, way, the way that the, the word talks about the unit, he didn't have nothing. Mm. See, so he, he came just like he was, mm -hmm. with with nothing, but expecting mm -hmm. so much more. Mm -hmm. So that, that's that, that's what I got. Gotcha. How do you, what significance does this have for the church, and what significance does it have for you personally? Any of those. Okay, as far as for me, I, I was not satisfied with just what I knew mm -hmm. and what I had mm -hmm. because I, 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 I found out that God was greater, right? And He was my provider, and He would provide me with more mm -hmm. if I would just give myself to Him. Mm -hmm. So you see yourself like the in the unit. break it down um, it, it, and when I can only go by me being black and um, it's been a black man and if you know God and if you read the Bible he talks about he knows his people how many times you got to save the same person over and over again he knows to say hey when you write this 
I want you to write it this way. When you talk about this, I want you to talk about this certain thing because he know that a black man is going to be down. He know that we were at one time at one status. I, I, I go back to the old. I read a lot of old things. I, read, I know about the Moors. You need to read about the Moors. Y'all need to if you don't know about it. And they, they tell you when, when they went to Europe, they were, they, were, they, were, they were somebody. Seriously, they were somebody. It wasn't many of them. But when they went there, they were, they were looked at as noblemen. But as time went on, times changed. And they said, hold on, we, we want what they have. So when they got what they had, they said, let's change everything around. And that was God saying, I know my people. So if I know my people, let's put this where it needs to be. So when people do read it, when that unit does read what he needs to read, he knows that I am there for him. When it goes to the church, we, when we look at the church, and, and I grew up in church, and we look at church as, hey, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have this much. Believe it or not, a lot of people think that way. When God says you have this much, if you just bring your people back, and you look at things like Pastor said many times, a lot of black people are leaving the church because they don't believe that it's for us. Yeah. They don't believe the church is for us. They don't believe that we're able to go up here. Because we've been kept down here so long. So when you go to church and you, you're a black man, especially a black man. I say I go to church and my friends are like, you go where? Where you going on Sunday? I'm going to church. And that was God saying, we need you back up here because I got you up here. Read this over here. It's in the Bible. And when you put something in writing, what does a black man do? He don't read it. And that's what God's saying. Read this. All the other stuff you're reading, don't read. Read this. But the, we've been taught in slavery. Don't read. Because if they even tell you, if he reads, he runs. If he read, he learns. If he read, he get rich. You know, I got to finish, right? Okay, thank you. But, but that's personal to me. Yes. Was great, but I, I gotta go. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I agree with everything he said. All right. Oh, I think that <laughs> I think we have to look at it from the perspective of that God, in His infinite wisdom, um, providentially put this man in the Scripture so that there would be no denying that faith in God is bigger than your skin color, your nationality, where you came from, what language you speak. God is so much bigger than that, okay? And so we, I think this is the reason why God included this in there. And as for us, it, when you see yourself in scripture, it does something with your faith that makes you build it even more, that God thought about you so much that he included you, right? Now, can I just speak from an African-American post-slavery context? If you look at it, how prophetic is this? That in the Bible before slavery in America even ever happened this was already in the scripture to point out that this same Jesus that they would try to take away or manipulate to give to us we gonna find it one way or the other you get it okay so I, I look at it as very being very prophetic all right I'm getting ready to play a clip for you um, um, now don't play it yet when you go to it, I want you to stop at a, around a minute and 27 seconds because after that, it just goes left. And I just want to make sure that we just get just that first part, all right? So uh, come on, go to the next uh, screen. 
I think you either hit it twice. issues. Okay. Well, let me skip my point then. Thanks a lot. Well, okay. So, and I can't talk nothing about it because it's not going to make any sense. All right. Um, let me skip that. So, here's what I need for us to understand. I am literally teaching you tonight. Uh, go ahead and go to the next one. Go to the next slide after that then. You got that, right? Praise God. There it is. Write that word down. Apologetics. This is what I'm teaching you. Apologetics. Apologetics. Actually, if you want to go deeper, I'm actually teaching you urban apologetics, which is different. Urban apologetics is a new, um, a new faction in the theological realms. It is more recent, probably stemming from the 60s, 70s, and on. Um, James Cone, who is the father of, of liberation theology, is where this kind of comes from where you get to see how to, def apologetics, and if you want a definition, let me give it to you. Apologetics simply defined as the defense of the Christian faith. It's not apologizing for it, it's defending it, okay? Don't get st stuck on that word apology on the front of it. It's not, it's not an apology. It's not you're saying you're sorry for your faith. It's, the, it's a defense of your faith. It means I know my faith that I could defend it. And that's what I'm trying to get you to do. I'm trying to get you to make sure that you can defend your faith, all right? Um, to understand Christianity, we have to go back to uh, its roots and just think about the place from which Christianity emerged, which is Palestine. Everybody say Palestine. First, geographically, Palestine is connected with Africa and with Asia that sits right there and is kind of the centerpiece between these two continents. In fact, some historians identified Palestine at the time as Northeast Africa. Let me say that one more time before I skip over that. Many theologians during this time, time of antiquity, time when the Bible was written, time when people uh, that we read about, most times, uh, most theologians believe that Palestine was considered Northeast Africa, okay? But there's a lot of debate about that, so I'm not telling you that's what it is. I'm just telling you that some theologians believe that, all right? But Christianity is embedded right there in the context of Africa. Now, we can go back beyond Christianity and consider even how Abraham, who's considered the father of the Jews, spent time in Africa. You read your Bible, you discover Joseph also spent time in Africa. The Israelites spent 430 years in Africa. And now, when we come to the New Testament, we know that the first non-Jewish convert was an Ethiopian. It was an African, uh, uh, the first non-Jewish convert to the early church um, was after, who had taken the religion back into Africa. And when we look at the actual development of early uh, Christianity or the early church, we see that it's primarily an African-Asian religion. Didn't that blow your mind? So when 
after it leaves Palestine, where does it go? It goes into Africa and in Asia. Notice I did not say Europe. That comes much later. It started out in Africa and in Asia, okay? So when did the gospel come to Africa? When did the gospel come to Africa? There are many answers to this question, but I just want to give you a few. The first answer to when did the gospel come to Africa is wrapped up in a man named Mark. Where have you heard that name before? It's in your what? It's in your Bible. Where is it in your Bible? New Testament. In the what? In the Gospels. What are the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How did, how did the gospel get into Africa? One of the main ways it got into Africa was through a man named Mark. Mark the evangelist. Mark the apostle. The person who wrote the book of Mark. What is the oldest gospel? It's Mark. Mark was written before all the other ones. In fact, when you do your research, you will discover that some of the things that's in Matthew, Luke, and John was taken from Mark. Now, I intentionally did not do something last week because I wanted to blow your mind this week. Guess where Mark is from? Cyrene. which is modern-day Libya. Where is Libya? Didn't I blow your mind this time? Okay. He came to Alexandria, uh, Egypt, around 48 AD. Alexandria, Egypt. And the Coptic, I need you to hear this, Coptic Orthodox Church, who is still around to this day, claims that both Thomas and Mark were in Egypt during the persecution of the Jesus movement. Mark was the first um, to preach the gospel in Egypt, and Mark was the one who founded over a hundred churches in Egypt. The Coptic Orthodox Church that is still around to this day believe that the reason they embrace Christianity so quickly, this going to bless you real good, in Egypt and in Ethiopia was because they were able to see Christ even in their own historical fables and tales. Mark shows up, disciple of Jesus Christ, shows up after the persecution. What happens when, when Christians are persecuted? What do they do? They, they spread out. Mark said, I'm out, I'm going home. And he's going back to Cyrene. But before he gets there, he stops off in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, and starts to preach the gospel and starts converting people. And the reason why Egyptians and Ethiopians um, were so quick to accept this gospel that is new to them was because when they looked at their historical fables and their tales and all these things that they believed for thousands of years, they saw Jesus in that. And they put the two and two together and said, maybe that sun God we was talking about over there is actually Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
Now this is difficult because when you go to these same areas today, they are 90% Muslim. But what we don't know is uh, uh, Islam did not show up until six, nine, 697. When did I say he came to, um, to, to Alexandria? What, what did I say? Anybody heard it? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Islam didn't show up to 697. Do y'all see that? Okay. Now watch this. At the same time, Mark is preaching in Egypt. Okay. At the same time, the center of early Christianity was an Afro-Asiatic city called Alexandria. Alexandria. Although it was named Alexandria after the Roman emperor, it was located in Egypt. And this is where the great early theologians of the church were centered. So Jesus has gone, sent it on high. Disciples spread out everywhere. Gospel is just spread. It's just spread. It's just spread. And somehow, some way, it lands in this city called Alexandria, which was like the metropolitan place of that time. It was a big, huge city. It was on the shore of, 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 of Egypt. Now, and it's still there to this day. Okay? Um, now watch this. And this is where theologians of the church were centered. This is where the development of Christianity through what we know as the early church fathers. Everybody say the early church fathers. When you look at the early church fathers, the first theologians of what we call Christianity and the development of Christianity, it came through these early church fathers. And majority of the early church fathers were black. Their names, and I'm going to talk about them to, uh, tonight, uh, Athanasius, Alexander, Tertullian, Origen, and even Augustine himself are all African. Okay? So the first 300 years of Christianity had its roots and its foundation in the continent of Africa. This is not Bible. This is history now. I need y'all to understand. Okay? Now, here's the problem with the Eurocentric way of looking at history. When you look up pictures of church fathers, uh, is it on there? You got it? That's what you get. Something wrong with that picture, ain't it? Mm -hmm. That is the first depiction of the early church fathers and majority of them were African, but in fact, if you Google early church fathers and try to look for a picture, they get worse than that. Okay? So tonight I want to lay out, we're talking about early African Christianity. How does it develop? Now, this is after the gospel. This is the spread of the church. And what happens after that? I want to give you a couple of the early church fathers. The first one I want to talk about is Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria. But where he from? You're so smart. Why is Clement important? Clement believed faith and reason complemented each other. He is the father, guess what? This, this, I hope this blows your mind real good. He is the father of systematic theology. Okay? Uh, it is taught from um, 
most times it's taught from a Eurocentric viewpoint, but people don't learn it was started by an African man. Clement was an apologist. I just talked about uh, uh, apologetics. Clement was an apologist, a defender of the faith. He was always looking for ways to integrate his faith with the world around him. He would always try to reconcile philosophy and spirituality. He was one of those type that said, okay, I know what Plato said, and I got all that, so let me take that, and let me take my faith, and let me integrate them somehow together to figure out who is God. Watch this. And he had a gift for utilizing philosophy to explain the truths and implications of God's word with those who were far, far from God. One of his greatest works is a book called The Instructor, on which is the first literary work where we get this term, come on, let's go, um, Christian Ethics. Christian ethics. Modern day Christian ethics is based upon that book. Christian ethics. Now, Pastor, what is Christian ethics? Let me give you a definition. We're in the weeds tonight. Christian ethics is a branch of Christian theology that defines very, uh, virtuous behavior and wrong behavior from a Christian perspective. Christian ethics defines virtuous behavior and wrong behavior from a Christian perspective. Okay? Well, all I need is my Bible. Okay. Find the internet in the Bible. Find Facebook in there. Have you seen it in there? It ain't in there. So obviously, watch this, you're going to have to interpret Scripture to figure out as times change, what does God's word mean now? That's Christian ethics. Is this wrong? Is this right? Okay? Now, this, this gets a little deep, and I want to kind of lay this out for you, for you to understand. I'm telling you about the person, but I'm trying to bring it modern day so you understand how it affects your faith. All right? Um, God's word, Christian ethics, would be the principles derived from the Christian faith by which, by which we act. While God's word may not cover every situation we face throughout our lives, its principles gives us standards by which we must conduct ourselves in those situations where there are no, where there are no explicit instructions. So God don't tell you what happens when somebody uh, puts you on blast on social media. That ain't nowhere in his word. Christian ethics looks at the word of God and says this is what is virtuous behavior if we are going to be Christians in this world so you don't have the option of clapping back because that's not because when you look at the word the word say you're supposed to turn the other cheek you, you, do you follow what Christian ethics is now and how it relates to you it is a standard by how we live our lives. His book, uh, his book presented Jesus as the divine logos. Logos. What does logos mean? The word. Logos. It, it presented Jesus divine logos that instructs the Christian on how to live in a society. I need y'all to hear that because you need to put that together. His book presented Jesus as the divine logos the word that instructs the Christian on how to live in society. So when I'm trying to figure out how to live my life, I need to be looking at you see that? Because he is the living word. Pastors, theologians, and apologists still use Clement's method as a way to build a bridge from doubt to faith. Alright? So that's Clement of Alexandria. Here's the next one, Tertullian. Tertullian. 
These are African fathers, Tertullian. Tertullian is from Carthage. Carthage. It's in Africa. Tertullian is known in church history as the father of Latin theology. Don't hang up on me. I promise you it's going to make sense in a minute. As he was the first church leader to write his works in Latin. So before it was ever in Latin, he came along. It was not in Latin. He came along and wrote it in Latin. Now, that's a little dangerous because there might be terms in Latin that might not be in the original language. So he got to pick and choose how he wanted to say it. Follow this thought now. I need to follow this thought. Most of his writings was in defense of Christianity against persecution from without or heresy from within. He had an enormous influence in the early church. He was born about uh, 145 AD to a Roman centurion in um, Carthage, um, to a Roman centurion in Carthage. His daddy was a Roman centurion in Carthage, which means his mama, uh-huh. Y'all got it now? All right. Now, when Eurocentric theology, they just pick up the daddy side. But if he's in Carthage, he got you a sister. Okay, watch this. He was trained in Greek and in Latin and became a lawyer in Rome where he was converted to Christianity about 185 AD. Very little about the details of his conversion, but it is said that he could not imagine a truly Christian life, watch this, without a conscious breach a radical act of conversion in other words what that meant was before he got saved he was turning up hard because his language after he gets saved is saying if you're going to become a Christian the Christian life is a conscious breach a radical act of conversion mm -hmm. so it is believed that he um, was uh, 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 he indulged in a typical licentiousness of Roman society, including sexual promiscuity and even the games in the arena. Gambling, smoking, drinking, and sexing. Okay? He was affected by the, and this is why he got saved, because he was affected by the testimonies of the Christians who were martyred. What does martyred mean? They were killed um, in the arena, and it's likely that his conversion was a result. Tertullian was ordained a presbyter in the church at Carthage, North Africa, and began writing books addressing the issues facing the church of, in his day. Um, in response to a heresy about the Godhead, Tertullian wrote this book called Against Praxis, which is the first time that the word, here we go, that this word is ever used. The first time this word is ever used. Come on. There we go. Thank you. The first time this word, Trinity, is ever used is in his book. And he used it to describe the Godhead. Concerning the Father, Son, and the Spirit, Tertullian said, and I quote, these three are one substance not one person okay now I'm challenging you because what I'm trying to get you to see is how Christianity had to there was a wrestle that had to happen in order for us to get what we got okay it was not just see this is the problem with us 
the problem with why people reject the Bible is because the Bible is not a user manual like you got in your car. It ain't got no page to say to go to this page. You got to take this over here and tie it with this way over there, and you got to take over. You know what, in, in case you didn't know, I know we look at the Muslims and we say, oh, they got to pray five times a day. Excuse me, when you read your Bible, you got to work. This is not something that's just going to be laid out for you. You got to work. So what I'm trying to show you is that these early church fathers were working this word. They were trying to wrestle with it to figure it out, all right? Um, his longest book against uh, Mercone defended the use of the Old Testament by the Christian church and demonstrated how to use the scripture uh, to refute heresy. And the biggest heresy that he had to deal with, I think it's on the screen, the biggest heresy that he had to deal with, is it on there, the next one? No, don't worry about it. It's Gnosticism. Gnosticism, G-N-O-S. T-I-C-I-S-M Gnosticism Okay, Gnosticism Gnosticism is an early version of agnosticism or agnostic Okay, but we'll talk about that later I get, I'll get with that next week I want to talk about Gnosticism Okay, Gnosticism was a major threat to the church in this day and Tertullian did more than anyone else to overthrow the influence of Gnosticism. Tertullian was a key player in the transition of the church that persecuted. Um, did I not write down what Gnosticism is? I don't think I did, but I know what it is. Okay, so Gnosticism is this, this faith that believes that what you think is greater than what's in the book. Gnostic means no, to know. So in other words, they believe there was this special revelation that you got that was bigger than who God was. And that revelation that you got became your God. Okay? So he had to come against that because their problem was they couldn't understand how is this God three in one. Okay? And so they would come up with their own philosophy as to what it was, and he had to come against it, all right? Tertullian was a key player in the transition of the church from, the, from a, a persecuted minority to a major influence in Roman society. Early in his ministry, he wrote his apology. It's a book called Apology, which defended the church against the persecution of the state and explained the principles, I need you to hear this, of religious liberties. He defended the persecution of the state and religious liberties. So when all these white evangelicals talk about religious liberties, just know they got that concept from a black man. I know y'all think that America, that's a, new, that's a new thing, religious liberties. They left Britain to free so they, they could worship they wanted. They ain't new. Tertullian was talking about this long before that. Okay? He actually wrote a book about it. He was the first writer to use the word church to be described as a specific building rather than an assembly, assembly of people. When you look at your Bible, even New Testament, when they said the church, they were talking about an assembly of people. They would say the, the church at Chloe's house. They weren't talking about a building. They were talking about the people because the church is the people. Tertullian was the first one to take that term and coin it towards a building. So the reason why we call this a church is because of a black man. Okay? 
He was also the first person to speak of a distinction between clergy and laity, though he affirmed the universal priesthood of the believers. Okay? While he is known as the father of Latin Christianity, this is where he gets in trouble. Some blame him for the errors of the Roman Catholic Church because, because they saw that this distinction between uh, the priests, uh, between laity and clergy and this hierarchy that the Roman Catholic Church installed, they try to trace it back to him and say it was his teaching that gave us this. But when you study his teaching, you will discover he had a major problem with the hierarchy of that church. He did not subscribe to what the Roman Catholics eventually tried to turn it into, okay? Tertullian laid down the principles that custom, hear this, without truth, is only time-honored error. Customs without truth is only time-honored error. So if you're well white on first Sunday, that's a custom that ain't got no truth in it. And it is a time-honored error. Let me prove it to you. Because most churches don't wear white on first Sunday no more. So it was time honored in that time. Times move on. In other words, what he was trying to say is don't you get locked in the tradition. Because tradition ain't where it's at. Do y'all see that? This is where this is coming from. All right? Tertullian. Black man. Okay? Um, regarding baptism. He was, it was a lot, y'all, so stick with me. I'm almost done. And regarding baptism, he firmly taught against baptizing children. Before that, they would baptize children. He came along and said, uh-uh, stop baptizing these children because they were not old enough to uh, repent and believe. Do you see the break between him and the Roman Catholic Church? Because the Roman Catholic Church would take a baby. And they have no clue. All they get, they, they just get their head wet. Do you see the difference now? And this is where Tertullian comes along and says, stop baptizing these babies because they don't know what's happening. Okay? All right? Um, now, this is, he gets in a little trouble again. Okay? I got to give you good and the bad. Though he was one of the early church fathers who advocated, hear this, advocated celibacy. Now, where did that pick up from? Didn't the Roman Catholics, now the priests don't have, okay? They reached back to him to get that from, from him. He advocated celibacy, but this is going to bless you real good. But he was married. <laughs> Just like a brother. <laughs> okay. Let me get the next person. Origin. Origin. He was a student of Clement of Alexandria. The origin is often criticized for being on the edge of orthodoxy. He gave the church a blueprint for how to properly study God's word or hermeneutics. This is where we get hermeneutics from, from origin. He, along with Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian, was the first person to use the term New Testament or New Covenant as a way to establish which book should be recognized as authoritative scripture. Origin... Um, 
he was the one that came along and looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I'm not going to get into much trouble here, um, and I'm not going to dwell here because there's a lot of opinions about this. But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he saw that Genesis 1 was a spiritual creation, a more sophisticated creation, and Genesis 2 is the physical creation, a less sophisticated uh, uh, creation. I'm going to dwell right there. I'm going to keep it moving because that's too much to explain to try to lay that out for you for you to get really grasp that because now it's going to get you over the stuff that you like. Wait a minute. <laughs> An African theologian that gives us a blueprint for her hermeneutics or to study the Bible. In the year uh, 202, Origen's father was beheaded for his Christian faith. And to support his family, Origen began teaching grammar and basic Christian beliefs. His writing and education career grew, and before long, he was running an entire school and hosting visits from politicians and, and academics. All the while, Origen produced scholarly works both in high quality and mass quantity. At one point, he was said to have seven scribes working at top speed. He is sitting there and seven people, and he just, I mean, he going at it. And you got to write. Origen studied under the non. Now, here's what's uh, uh, unique about him. He studied under non-Christian philosophers in his birth city of Alexandria, Egypt, in order to better understand their argument. This is the problem with us, because we don't want to hear anybody else's argument. We want to isolate ourselves and be in our little shell, but we don't under We don't want to step back and say, "Okay, if you're if you're this, if you're that, let me understand." where you get that from. They don't have to change my belief system. I'm showing who I believe. I believe in God. I believe, I am very clear on that. I believe I'm saved by Jesus Christ. I believe I have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'm not, you can't sway me from that. No matter how persuasive your argument is, I am confident of that, okay? But he would go to uh, non-Christian philosophers and study under them to understand their argument. This, this fueled one of his most important works, um, deep, uh, and it's called On First Principles. This is believed to be Christianity's first comprehensive work, write this down, of systematic theology. It, the first comprehensive work of systematic theology. Pastor, what is systematic theology? I'm so glad you asked. Um, here's the definition. It is organizing the teachings of the Bible in a categorical system. It is organizing uh, uh, the, the teachings of the Bible into a categorical system. Okay? So, preachers get off on this kind of stuff, and, you know, and once you start learning a word, you'll, you'll hear these words. So, theology proper or materiology is the study of God the Father. Christology is the study of Christ. Pneumatology is the study of anybody pneumatology. What is pneumatology study of? Huh? What's pneumatology? Pneumatology. If you want me to spell it for you? Let me spell it for you because that'd be better. Pneumatology is um, P N E U M A tology. Pneumatology. Air. Yes, keep going with that. Thank you. Pneumatology. If Christology is the study of Christ and Pateriology is the study of God the Father, Pneumatology is the study of? Thank you. The Holy Spirit. Pneuma. Wind. Spirit. Okay? Yes. All right? 
Bibliology, study of the, you're not going to know this one, soteriology, it's the study of salvation. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Eschatology is the study of end times. Angelology, uh, Christian demonology is the study of demons. Christian, Christian anthropology is the study of humanity. Um, Hemeritology is the study of sin. Systematic theology is an important tool in helping us to understand and teach the Bible in an organized manner. So if you ever get a systematic theology book, what it's going to do is going to take one of those subjects and it's going to lay out every scripture that has to deal with that and explain why it has to deal with that. Okay? All right? Origin not only laid out a structured approach to Christian belief, but did it through, um, um, through Greek philosophy. Origin also responded to anti-Christian anti works uh, written shortly before his birth by the Greek philosopher Silas. Silas' um, work uh, broadly attacked the Christian history, philosophy, and prophecies. And uh, Origen steps back and says, I'm going to write something that, that contradicts this. Because again, he gets in there to find out what they believe. Okay? All right. Um, now, Origen's, his other side, Origen's work can be a little challenging because he believed all scriptures had three levels. Literal, or three meanings. Literal, figurative, and moral. That's hard, y'all. That is hard to figure that out, okay? Um, and so, origin played a great part. Um, let me get to this next one. Athanasius. Athanasius. Now, Athanasius is a very prominent person you have never heard of. When it comes to our faith, it probably don't get, besides Augustine or Augustine, uh, it gets no bigger than Athanasius. Um, Athanasius, even though much about his early life is not written, um, Athanasius was caught by the Bishop of Alexandria playing with his friends. And he preached a full sermon, even performed a few baptisms in play. You know what that means? Black people have been playing church a long time. We've been playing church a long time. But when the bishop of Alexandria questioned Athanasius' actions, he realized Athanasius was not playing church at all. The bishop was so convinced by, um, by this that he confirmed the baptism, that he confirmed the baptisms of Athanasius, that he had ministered and took him under his wing and trained him for ministry. That's a bad boy. Because people thought you were playing. And then when they saw you weren't playing, whoever you did baptize, we took it as law. Oh, that's real. Y'all really got baptized. So what is, what, is it that, what is that we know him for? If it was not for Athanasius, he would not have a roast, we would not have a roast, robust understanding of, come on, Christ, of Christology. 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 Study of Christ. We would not have an understanding that the Father and the Son, hear this, are co-equal and co-eternal. That thinking comes from Athanasius. The God the Father and Jesus the Son are the same substance. Jesus is not a lesser substance. Three persons in one. We get that from Athanasius. Athanasius was coming against a doctrine that's still around to this day. Write this down because I need you to hear this. He was coming against a doctrine called Arianism. Uh, Arianism. 
A-R-I-A-N-I-S-M. Aaronism. Aaronism. A-R-I-A-N-I-S-M. Now, Aaronism is, is a funny thing because it's so uh, prevalent in today's time that you don't even know it's there. Let me show it to you. Aaronism says that Jesus was not born of God. They de deny the divinity of, of Christ. They believe Jesus is not begotten of God. They believe, catch this, that Jesus is the first created being. Yeah, I'm messing with some of y'all because y'all thought the same thing. Jesus, they, they believe that Jesus is God's first created being. Okay? What's wrong with that theology? What's wrong with that? Uh-huh. Keep going. Huh? There would be no reason for him to come. Okay. If he is God's first creation or created being, that means he is just like us. Then how did I get saved? Because you sure can't save me. And I sure can't save you. So who believes this in this day and time? Oh, didn't I blow your mind this time? Who believes it's in this day and time? They are called Jehovah Witness. Uh-huh. Okay. That makes Jesus just like me and you. Athanasius comes along and says, hey, 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 y'all. Y'all know that's stupid, right? Can I tell you why that's stupid? Let me just, no, you ain't got to believe my word. Come on, let's go. If come on now. John 1, verse number 1. The Bible says, the Bible says, amen, all right, come on. The Bible says, in the beginning, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God you drop down to verse 14 it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us so how is he a created his first creation if the word says in the beginning was the and the word was with God and the word was see that? Now let me push this even further about Athanasius. Athanasius was a bad man. Athanasius' nickname, you ready for this? This was his nickname. We know his nickname. His nickname was Black Dwarf. He was short. He had a Napoleon complex before Napoleon was ever born. Because Athanasius would show up and he had a lot of mouth. Um, the way the writers talk about him is very interesting. 
they say he's very spicy and saucy. Which means he got a smart mouth. The little black dwarf will come in and let y'all know that ain't what that say. Okay? I'm going quickly. And he looks at it and says, I need to write something based upon the word of God. Looks at Adam and Eve and says, oh, this is why I'm doing this. Original sin. I can't help myself. That's why I need Jesus Christ. You see how we got all this from African fathers? These concepts that we believe in the church to this day? This comes from African fathers. I, I, this is not an African father, but I wanted to give you this. Sisters, this is just for y'all. Um, this is just for y'all. She's not an African father, but I need to include her because she is important as well. Um, her name is Saint Perpetua. Is that on there? Saint Perpetua. Saint Perpetua. Uh, P-E-R-P-E-T-U-A. Saint Perpetua. She's from Carthage as well. What is her role? She was a martyr. Perpetua was a 22-year-old mother who refused to obey the Roman emperor and renounce her faith, and uh, he wanted her to renounce her faith in Jesus Christ. Though, um, and if you want to know her dates, she is 182 to 203. Born, year 182, and died in 203. Her father urged her to be sensible. She endured imprisonment, torture, and death for the sake of the gospel. In the days leading up to the death, she not only nourished the church with her bravery and commitment to endure against persecution, but she also nourished, hear this, her infant by nursing him while in prison. Perpetua condemned for her faith unto death. Why is she important? Why am I even talking about her? Because she is the first woman who ever wrote the earliest text. She wrote the earliest text explaining faith. She is the first woman, a black woman. I know y'all looking like, I ain't know none of this. This is crazy. Okay? I want to end there on tonight. Do you see how... <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Do you see how the lack of knowledge can have you feeling like you're not a part of and the foundation of your faith was built by black people it was cradled and nurtured in Africa ain't that a mess I talked about Alexandria and um, I might get to this next week I might not Alexandria is so important in Egypt why Alexandria is the place where they had a library that was so expansive that the university system in Europe is based upon that library. To this day, the university system that you all went through is based upon that example in Alexandria, Egypt. That's how monumental that is. Okay? I'm going to say this, and I'm closing out on tonight. I had been praying about this and praying about this and really really thinking about this and so I want to do something next year 2021 um, I don't have the dates yet we're still trying to decide between 
March or um, May of next year, of 2021. But right now, we are putting together a trip to go to Ethiopia to uh, go to the ancient churches, the rock churches, churches that were built out of the rock, that were built, um, made over a thousand, some of them even later than that, years ago. Um, if you research it, many people don't even know about it. Lalibala is um, it's in uh, uh, Ethiopia. We're putting together a trip to go there um, next year. I, it was something that I wanted to do, and I thought about it. I said, well, since the Lord has us going through this, I want to open this up to more people. Because you need to see with your own eyes. Now, I know most churches go to Jerusalem. I ain't got no problem with that. That's wonderful. That's great. But we've been freedom and we've been strange.